Hi, it's Fraser here. As regular listeners will know by now, Spiked's podcasts, essays, articles, and videos are free in every sense of the word. Spiked exists to fight for freedom. And in 2020, freedom has never been more threatened. Lockdown threatens our right to free assembly and free movement, while cancel culture and identity politics threaten our right to free speech and free thought. Democracy, that most important right of a free people, is similarly under siege. Spiked wants to challenge these illiberal and authoritarian trends, but we can't do it without your help. It's donations from our listeners and readers that allow us to keep up these fights and to take our message to a growing audience. So, if you haven't already, please consider making a donation to Spiked. One-off donations are fantastic, but regular donations are even better. Just £5 per month can make an enormous difference to our work. Donating to Spiked is really easy to do. Just go to our website at spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. We cannot thank you enough for your support. Now, on with the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week we have Spiked's editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And we're going to discuss the US election. Joe Biden in the driver's seat. He is in the strongest position of any challenger in modern history. Texas could be a battleground state this year. Who isn't focused on Florida, right? <laughs> Deja vu to 2016. Can we trust these polls? We believe we're on track to win this election. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. At the time of recording, uh, neither candidate has reached the magic 270 electoral college votes to win the presidency, though Joe Biden has a clear lead over Donald Trump in the popular vote and has far more options for victory. The pollsters were predicting a landslide for Biden. There was talk of a blue wave winning historically red states, which didn't materialise. The Democrats have also fallen short of expectations in the Senate and have even lost ground to the Republicans in the House. Trump's support, on the other hand, has held up surprisingly well. He's expanded his vote, not only in raw numbers, but also among some unexpected groups, such as black voters, Latino voters and LGBT voters. Trump has, however, declared the election a fraud and has vowed to fight some of the vote counts in the courts. Uh, Brendan, first of all, what do you think it means that whatever happens in the end, that Trump has not been as comprehensively defeated as was being hoped in some quarters. I think it's really important and really revealing. I think, you know, firstly, there was the wrongness of the prediction. So many pollsters and pundits and experts had said that this would be a massive defeat for Trump. It would be a Biden landslide. There would be a Biden blowout. And they had all these numbers predicting huge advances for the Democrats and huge losses for Trump. And most of that just hasn't come to fruition. It just hasn't happened. So their mistakes, I think, are incredibly important, incredibly revealing. And as we argued on Spike this week, it really points to one of the most important political factors of our time, which is just this huge gaping chasm between the political set and the media set and ordinary people who no longer tell pollsters or anyone else what they're thinking. And, th and that sense of disconnection and distrust, I think, is has become really clear in this you know, let's not be around the bush. The fact that Trump 
has boosted his vote by around 3 million so far, has got almost 17 million votes, is absolutely staggering. If you consider the fact that virtually the entire media proposed that people should vote for Biden, I think only six major newspapers suggested people should vote for Trump. The rest of them said that everyone should vote for Biden. The whole of academia, the intellectual elites, the cultural elites, the celebrity set, the social media world, you know, firstly, the capitalist owners of the social media world, but also the influencers who live in the social media. I mean, all these sections of society, all these new elites and cultural elites have spent four years saying that Trump is the worst politician of all time. He's just like Hitler. Anyone who votes for him is a deranged lunatic. And still, 70 million people voted for him. 70 million people defied the diktats of those kind of sections of society who think they know better and chose the man you're not supposed to choose. And that's really extraordinary. And this includes, as you say, Fraser, lots of white working class people, lots of Latino working class people, a growing number of black men, you know, really important constituencies. And I think what we are witnessing, in my view, is the emergence of a proper form of resistance. Because this is a group of people, an incredibly significant number of people, who seem to be immune to the pressures of the media elites and the cultural elites, and who seem determined to think for themselves and to behave in a way politically that they think is best for themselves and their communities. That's not something to be sniffed at. I think that is a real demonstration of the importance of populism and the ability of ordinary people to determine what their own political interests are and to act in a way that they think is most suitable for them. So that disconnect, I think, goes far beyond pollsters getting it wrong. It speaks to the fact that there are millions upon millions of people in America, and as we know, the UK as well, who do not do as they are told and who are able to resist the pressure to conform, the extraordinary pressure to conform that is constantly coming from the new elites. Tom, your thoughts? No, I agree with all of that. I think it's also worth dwelling for a second on the scale of the of the polling screw up. Mm. You know, first of all, because it's quite amusing given the incredible certainty of these people going into this race, even given the lessons of 2016, you think they would have learned it. But at the same time, also the scale of it is really, really striking. So you had, you know, YouGov's MRP model were predicting a Biden landslide. Everyone, as Brendan was saying, we're talking about a blue wave, something that never really materialised. You know, you had 538 saying that Trump would barely squeak higher. He won it by about eight points. New York Times gave Biden a 70% chance of winning Florida. We all know what happened there. And again, in, even in relation to the Senate race, which again, you saw Democrats really kind of heightening expectations about them flipping that. 538, again, I think they said they had a three quarters chance of turning it blue. And yet that has failed to materialise completely. And I think what's really striking is whilst on the one hand, the refusal of the American electorate to give the democratic, technocratic elites the kind of rubber stamp that they were seeking, this overwhelming mandate, this repudiation, not just of Trump, but of Trumpism and all that represented. Not only have a lot of American voters rejected their right to rule in that sense, they've also called into question their expertise, their basis for what they claim to be their right to rule over society. If you think about the scale of how much they've got this wrong, it's really, really striking. Now, as I think we'll see in the coming days, as we saw in 2016, a lot of the political class and particularly the polling establishment try and get in a lot of excuses for themselves. They'll say, you know, 
we said that there was a 75% chance this happening. Unlikely things still do happen. But if they keep not happening, that's surely <laughs> got to be something that they have to answer for. And I think it reminds us in terms of the past few years of the second half of that Michael Gove quote in relation to Brexit and the populist revolt here, often misquoted, often taken out of context. He said that the people have had enough of experts who keep getting it wrong. And that's something <laughs> that we saw in relation to this election again and i think it just demonstrates that not only has there been a rejection of these people's right to rule over us it doesn't matter how many degrees you have everyone's vote should have equal basis in a democracy but also just demonstrates how even on their own terms they have no idea what they're talking about ella the interesting thing this time around is watching the commentary it is notable how slightly more checked some of the people who went particularly crazy about the election in 2016 are this time round. So I'm I'm reading and hearing more people than last time round who are avidly Democrat and more importantly, avidly anti-Trump, having some sort of just a tinge of sort of humility because the fact is that while we still don't know who quite has won it, what everyone does know is that the Democrats haven't gone, as Tom and Brendan have said, with the haven't gotten away with the landslide that they hoped. But I mean, it is a complicated picture, but one that I think there is some really interesting things to pull out of. So Biden has beaten Obama's record in terms of the most votes ever for a president. I think at the time that we're recording, he's on about 72 million and Trump is somewhere at 68.6 million. So we can row about the, and people have been rather opportunistically rowing about the way that American voting works and the electoral college and all that kind of thing. But the point is that this is quite remarkable in terms of turnout. It's the biggest turnout for elections in a century. When I was thinking about it before this week, I was sort of certain that people weren't going to turn out. I mean, I was imagining what would I do if I was an American and I couldn't really think of mustering up the ability to vote for either side. I hate them both so eternally. (laughs) But it seems like people really did take this, not just seriously, but felt the need to go out and um, stamp their vote next to a candidate. And so you have to take that seriously and think about what that means for democracy. The thing that I'm worried about at the moment is not, you know, who wins necessarily. In fact, I kind of don't care who wins anymore. The things that have happened in the last 48 hours are more concerning. So Trump's attempt to basically declare the vote null and void in, you know, suing Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, I think it is, is bad news for democracy. But equally, I'm not convinced that the Democrats are going to learn their lesson, which they really should learn their lesson, is to be chastened by the fact that they haven't won so brilliantly and to drop the identity politics line, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about, because the question of whether the culture war that's been raging in America for the last four years is you know, going to continue I think it's already decided it is going to continue and that's bad news. You're right, Ella. It's been a bit more muted. I suppose that's because the results are are not yet conclusive, but we have had the kind of typical, it's all racist response or people saying, you know, the voters have got it wrong. Americans are stupid type thing. So in that sense, there are definitely echoes of 2016, the urge to demonize Trump voters has unsurprisingly not gone away. I mean, it's been there for the past four years. So I suppose why would it <laughs> disappear now? One example, Charles M. Blow in the New York Times got in there early calling this all a product of white patriarchy, which is, you know, a bit of a reminder of 2016 when that was described as a as a white lash. But I think one thing that's clear is that 
thinking about, you know, what this means in terms of, I don't know, populism and Trumpism is that 2016 was not an aberration in the way that many tried to make it out. People tried to demonize the result and say that it was just a product of Russia or just a product of stupidity, or even some smarter Democrats would say, oh, it's because, you know, Hillary just didn't campaign in the right places. And if we just put up a normal candidate who doesn't really say much, which is kind of the case of Joe Biden, people didn't really know what he stands for. We just put up a candidate against this racist. Finally, people will understand. Finally, after four years of seeing the Trumpian chaos, the pandemic, the economic troubles, finally, people will just vote for us because they will understand how how evil he is. But clearly, that groundswell of, of opposition to to what the Democrats have come to represent is a lot stronger than people think. I mean, strong enough to, to hold up support for, for someone like Donald Trump. You're listening to The Spikes Podcast. If you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're enjoying the show. If that's the case, why not tell other people about it? You could share the episode on social media, or you can give us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. That way you can help new listeners to find us, and it won't take any more than a few seconds. Help spread the word about the Spiked Podcast today by sharing us on social media or giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. Now, back to the show. I think we should talk a bit about the identity aspect as well, the different kind of, the surprising kind of uh, uh, people who came out in support for Trump. Does anyone want to say a bit on that? Yes, I think it was really interesting. I mean, not to beat up too much on Charles Blow, because it's very easy to do that. But I thought that piece in particular really summed up the disconnect, because he had this piece, the headline of which, as you say, was the exit poll points to the power of white patriarchy. And yet in the article itself, he points to the fact that Trump did better amongst ethnic minorities than he did last time and that the only group according to the exit polls which of course come with certain health warnings attached to them in terms of their accuracy but nevertheless seem to indicate that the only kind of racial slash gender group that moved away from Trump at this election were white men nevertheless this disconnect is not pointed to and again this is something that we knew from 2016 there was a piece up on MSNBC I think on the eve of the election which made this point which the reason that Trump was able to win in 2016 despite the fact he got a lower share of the white vote than Mitt Romney his predecessor was because at least in part he got a lot more black and Hispanic votes than he was expected to that really helped him in the battleground states and yet this fact wasn't recognized first of all which again I think speaks to the complacency of these people they assume that they have these people's votes and therefore really take them for granted but I think it also just demonstrates that this narrative this whole narrative around the stain of racism that Donald Trump is an example of that he's an outgrowth of that as well as having exacerbated it has become first of all one of the democratic elites kind of arguments for themselves they are the kind of bulwark against all of this ugliness whilst at the same time it's become the all-encompassing explanation as to why they keep failing or at least failing to meet the lofty expectations in this case that they've set themselves this again is a narrative which seems to carry on undented if anything becoming stronger and in some cases more extreme despite the fact that the evidence i.e the number of people who seem to be complicit in this white patriarchy despite the fact that a lot of them are neither white nor male none of that seems to affect them whatsoever and i think it just goes to show that when we talk about the establishment learning any lessons from this i see very little prospect of that at this point brendan yeah i agree with that and i think one of the really striking things is the way in which 
the election results so quickly gave rise to this kind of neo-racism that came out from woke elites and other observers who are furious with certain Latinos, especially Cubans in Florida, who they look upon as the scum of the earth. They think black men who voted for Trump are basically Uncle Toms. The way they talk about white women, you know, just this absolute hatred for white women that's coming across over the past few days, as we saw in 2016 as well, when white women in America were called, you know, the most obnoxious names you can imagine and basically seen as nodding dogs to their husbands. That's essentially how they were understood. What's really striking in in response to the identity shifts in the vote and the fact that more Latinos voted for Trump and more black people voted for Trump, we're seeing how hateful and even racist woke politics is because the initial response as soon as something like this happens from those kinds of people is to say, well, you're not really black, you know, echoing Joe Biden's own comment in the run-up to the election, or you're not a proper Latino. We've already seen people saying we have to split the Latino group up. You know, we have to move Cubans away from Puerto Ricans and others and make clear who's a real Latino and who's just a sellout to the white supremacy. Really ugly stuff, basically saying you've betrayed your race and therefore we're going to rob you off your racial badge and cast you out into the wilderness. So we're going to see a lot more of that, I think, which really shows how intolerant the new identity politics is. And then, you know, Charles Blow, just to mention him one more time, he also talked about the problem of white gays. You know, um, (laughs) he says we've never trusted white homosexuals because more gay people voted for Trump this time as well. So just that kind of ever fragmenting bitterness, divisiveness and even racism and homophobia off the supposedly woke set is really interesting. But I think there's a broader issue here in terms of the identity shifts and the use of phrases like white supremacy and white patriarchy and all of that. Fundamentally, these are ways of demonizing people who refuse to vote according to their identity. So that's what's going on here. These people are being called out and demeaned and and called names, etc., because they refuse to vote in what is perceived to be the correct manner for their racial group. Instead, they vote according to economic interests or political interests or because they think Trump will be better on certain issues than Biden would be. So in other words, they're behaving like democratic citizens. And that's the thing that really repels the woke elites because they want people to behave like members of an ethnic group or a gender group or a sexual group. And that's all that you're supposed to do. It's really striking the way in which over the past couple of days, the discussion about economic populism, economic populism is now being seen as one of the causes for why so many white working class people and Latinos and blacks and urban groups and others, why they're voting for Trump. And economic populism is now seen as this horrendous thing, basically just a cover for racism, just a glossy class-based cover for expressing hatred of certain groups in society. And what's really happening here, if you disentangle all of this stuff, the identitarian set is terrified that class concerns will come back. That is their great, great concern because Identity politics at root, as we've argued before on this podcast, is a fairly neoliberal phenomenon. It's quite explicitly anti-class. It hates the white working class. It doesn't like people talking about class rather than what it considers to be more important things like race and gender. And they are terrified of the new populist coalition that seems to be emerging between different groups in America who are concerned about class issues and economic issues. And if that populist coalition gets stronger, 
it will have an extraordinary power to destroy the eccentric neoliberal pseudo left politics of the woke elites. And that's fundamentally, I think, what they're really pushing back against. One really kind of telling illustration of what you're talking about and economic populism and kind of class interests uh, manifesting themselves in this election was how in Florida, which obviously went for Trump, on the same day, Floridians voted on a quite a large increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Whereas in California, which voted Democrat, there was a kind of proposition to keep Uber drivers as freelancers to deny them the kind of normal working rights that ordinary workers might have and, and keep them in the gig economy. And again, overwhelmingly that passed actually. So in the state that voted ostensibly for the left-wing candidate, voted for the kind of more le- neoliberal proposition, whereas the state that supposedly voted for the right-wing candidate voted for the kind of more what you might call economic populism or standard social democratic or left-wing politics. So it's a really interesting kind of flip in what we expect in politics. The, the left-right divide is dead in any meaningful sense. And you know, new coalitions and new interest groups are emerging out of that. Ella, did you want to say anything on this? Yeah, the one really good example to look at the way in which class might be coming back, or as Brenton says, Ellie's posing a threat to the Democrat state of mind is what happened in Texas. I was talking to Sean Collins last night, who wrote a column on this for Spiked about the fact that Latino voters in Texas, you know, a place where you're supposed to believe there is the most hatred for Trump because of the wall, because of all that toxicity around there. And so you're meant to believe that these people undoubtedly, unquestionably despise Trump. And yet he does a lot better than was expected among those voters. And no one seems to think, do you think maybe this might be because Latino voters in places like Texas might be treated like crap by the kind of people who vote Democrat in the same way that their white colleagues and peers are in areas like this? You know, they have no concept of what actually goes on in a normal person's life and what matters to them. It was the same thing that happened when people were sort of freaking out about the poll that got showed on the BBC on Tuesday night in the early hours of Wednesday morning, which showed that economic issues were far higher on people's priority lists than coronavirus, Mm. than racial inequality, lots of things, than healthcare policy. And the commentators were saying, how can this be? This is crazy. But if you look at political trends over the last six, seven years, you know, in relation to Brexit, in relation to populist movements across Europe, it's quite clear that working people are time and again putting forward the argument for a change materially in their lives in terms of the quality of life that they have rather than buying into any identity politics thing. So you're sort of like banging your head against a brick wall watching all of this. But I remember in 2018, two years after the 2016 election, I spoke to Arlie Hochschild, who's a author for Spiked. We interviewed her. She'd written a book called Strangers in Their Own Land, which was trying to get to grips with the reason why people from the kind of backgrounds that I've just been talking about are voting for Trump, you know, in the same way that people can't get their heads around why red wall voters voted for Boris Johnson. And one of the things she picked up on is the issue of she called it honour, and of people's sense of community. And she said the really important thing that Democrats don't understand and that we see now that they haven't understood yet again in 2020 is that these people are not sort of like mindless 
voting boxes mm. who just do what they're told, that they take into consideration that their daily lives, who they have dinner with, where they go to school, what jobs they have are central to their understanding of their identity. It's got nothing to do with whether they're white or black or gay or straight or male and female. I just wish more people had read <laughs> her book or read my interview with her. <laughs> it's just quickly on that. It really kind of underlines, I think, the incredible kind of sanctimony and kind of piety of the democratic establishment that they missed so many of these economic concerns and these kind of shifting patterns in relation to class and voting because they were really talking this up as if it was a big kind of moral even spiritual confrontation as far as they were concerned mm. that this was about making a stand against white supremacy against neo-fascism even in some quarters of the democratic party you saw people making those arguments yet again and just failing to recognize first of all how those claims are just ludicrous on their own terms as we've been talking about but also how people's day-to-day -day interests which is a lot of what has driven a lot of voters away from the democratic party anyway you know voting for these people time and again but their material lives not getting any better just completely ignoring that and i think that's one of the reasons why you see the basis of those two parties shifting a point thomas frank the author has made many times is that the democrats are still a class party just the class that they represent has changed and i think that you see that in relation to that bloomberg analysis of the donations for each party that was doing the rounds in a run-up to the election biden taking the lion's share of people who work at universities whereas trump taking the lion's share of construction workers people who are ranchers things like this and one particularly interesting one i thought was that one of his biggest bases of support were people who work at mail delivery companies and i think in the context of covid in particular in the context of lockdown which as we all know there are many people who haven't experienced lockdown in the same way that people who work in white collar jobs in the knowledge economy have because many of them have still been working delivering their amazon packages you know eight times a day as we've seen have very fundamentally different concerns and that again when you saw, as Joanna Williams wrote about in Spike this week, even amongst areas that have been pretty badly hit by COVID, you still saw Trump actually outperform in many instances because they are concerned about their material interests, which have not only been ignored by the kind of neoliberal democratic establishment for a very long time, but are being more actively put at threat than ever by Joe Biden's very culture war attachment to COVID fanaticism and lockdown, which is going to have a really deep impact on that. But again, the, the Democrats are so swept up in their own kind of sanctimony moral piety, their desire to paint this as, again, this kind of spiritual conflict against the forces of evil, effectively, that, again, they miss that. I think it's really, really striking, especially given how much the American economy and the world economy is in the toilet at this point. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. It's Fraser here with another quick reminder, if you haven't already, to consider giving Spiked a donation. All of our content is free and we want to keep it free so we can spread our pro-liberty, pro-democracy message as wide as possible. But we can only do that with your support. If you'd like to make a donation, it's easy. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the show. COVID is definitely something we should talk a bit about because, you know, the Democrats really tried to frame themselves as the party of science, the party of experts, the party that's going to be sensible on COVID uh, in contrast to the reckless Trump. Some people tried to blame Trump personally for the 200,000 plus people who have died. 
But also, I mean, there was a kind of symbolic aspect to this where Biden, you know, barely left his basement for what felt like months on end. And then when he finally did, he'd put on a mask, sometimes two masks. Brendan, do you want to talk a bit about this? I mean, why did this just not really work as a tactic? It was funny because people really expected people to see the errors of the pandemic and, you know, vote en masse against Trump. But clearly that didn't happen. I think the COVID stuff is really important in relation to this election. and. The results that we know so far, because, of course, one of the most famous American sayings in terms of politics is we have nothing to fear but fear itself, which I think is really pertinent to the events of the past year, which is that there was a very clear divide between one section of the political cultural elites who lived in complete dread of COVID and thought that they would benefit from talking constantly about how disastrous it was for the nation, thought they would benefit from saying that Trump effectively killed 230,000 people, he's a murderer, he's a granny killer, all that kind of stuff. They all stayed at home, they all made a real fetish of wearing masks. As you say, Biden hid in his basement, and they looked with complete and utter disgust upon any what they would view as redneck people who went on protests against lockdown. They thought they were the worst people in the world, unlike people who went on protests for Black Lives Matter, who were seen as fine, that's completely acceptable. So there was this divide between that section of society and then another section which was more willing to carry on and argued for lockdown to be eased, or in Donald Trump's case, just refused to wear masks, carried on having massive rallies with thousands and thousands of people. And I found all of that really heartening, actually, because it demonstrated, again, that there is a very significant section of society which refuses to stop living just because there is this nasty pretty dangerous virus around and they want to carry on living, want to carry on doing politics and want to carry on taking part in the electoral process, the democratic process and public life. So that I thought was really good. And it it gave me hope that something similar could happen potentially in the UK or that surely some politicians here will start to realise that pushing back against lockdowns is not the death knell of your political career that they might think it was. So that was very revealing. And I think through that discussion, as you say, Fraser, the Democrats tried to present themselves as pro-science, pro-evidence, dutifully fearful, constantly covered up, hiding away. But of course, that's not what many, many people want. What many people want is politicians who are a bit braver, who are willing to get out there, who are willing to carry on pressing the flesh, mixing with people, talking to people. And that divide, I think, was really crucial. So uh, I think two of the big mistakes the pollsters and the pundits and the experts made, firstly, they thought that their four years of hysteria about Trump being Hitler would have a massive impact on people. And of course, it didn't because people aren't stupid. And secondly, they thought the COVID crisis would have a massive impact on people. And it doesn't seem to have done that. So I think the American people, a significant section of them, these almost 70 million people who refuse to do what the establishment tells them to, they've actually sent a really important positive signal about COVID, which is you can carry on living And you can reward politicians like Trump, who openly says lockdowns are unscientific, who openly says lockdowns are destructive, and who says we have to carry on living even if there are risks involved. The fact that a politician who said that has just been supported by millions and millions of ordinary people, I think that's actually one of the more positive things about this election. Ella, 
the thing that the Democrats really did was turn the question of how to deal with COVID, not into a debate about the science or following the science, similar to what's happened in the UK, but this moral question that if you weren't up for wearing two masks and staying in your basement and sort of doing the performance of being a good COVID secure citizen, then you were just evil to be written off. And the thing that we picked up on on this podcast actually when it happened, but that lots of other people sort of poo-pooed, was the importance of when Trump made that statement after he'd got coronavirus and made a miracle recovery, or a very easy recovery, where he said, you know, don't let this thing get on top of you. And it was kind of passed off by Democrats as this like flippant, arrogant, sort of unsympathetic way of dealing with the virus. But I think that actually really chimed with voters because what it was saying is, yes, this virus is an issue and you can criticise Trump till the cows come home from the way he's handled the virus. But that central point of being hopeful, being future orientated even about the virus rather than being fearful is something that, as we've already said, Americans who are primarily concerned with their wage packet and their ability to carry on living and paying the rent and getting to work is very attractive. And, you know, what is the future with someone like Joe Biden, who it seems to me doesn't want to have any kind of brave approach to the virus, but wants to cower in the face of it? Now, maybe we should be talking about how to deal with the pandemic in far more logical, cold, clear-headed terms, weighing up risks, looking at how you can manage people's quality of life, as well as dealing with this new thing that we don't quite have all the facts on yet. But waging this moral war around, you know, virtue signaling around who's wearing how many masks and for what amount of time and you know, things that are already happening now, like people posting videos of early victory parties among some Trump voters who aren't wearing masks and doing all that kind of shaming is just it's just not the way to go. And finally, with the results being as, as tight as they are, Trump is looking to take some of this to the courts, um, has declared some of the results fraudulent without much basis, it seems, at this stage. But Tom, I wondered if you had any thoughts on on that kind of question that's hanging over us. No, I think it was really striking how in the kind of post-election coverage, or at least the, the coverage after the result, the much more mixed result became clear, is that particularly in the British media, it just became a question about Trump refusing to accept the result. And on the one hand, you think rightly so, he is pretty brazenly calling into question the result of a free and fair election. As far as we can tell, there's been no evidence presented to back up the fraud that he's alleging. That is very serious. It wasn't really a surprise. I mean, he was threatening to call into question the result of 2016 if it didn't go his way, lest we forget. So he's, he's nothing if not consistent. And all of that should be taken very seriously. On the one hand, I think it's worth taking into account that we're not in a situation where like the army are going to back him and then he's going to refuse to leave the White House. A lot of this, I think, is pantomime on his part. It's also him trying to protect his own ego. That's not edifying. It's not positive. But at the same time, I think the response to it can be a little outsized, shall we say. But nevertheless, I think a lot of the people currently condemning him, and Brendan wrote about this on Spiked this week, are people who were more than happy to delegitimize the result of 2016, both in relation to the Trump election and the Brexit referendum, who, in Britain's case, also dragged that result through the courts in order to uh, allow Parliament to try and intervene to overturn the vote for Brexit. And in many different fashions, almost using any tool available to them, including the legal route, tried to delegitimise that vote day in, day out. So whilst none of this excuses what Trump's engaging in at this point, I think the hypocrisy of people complaining about Trump trying to overturn a free and fair 
vote when that's what a lot of these people have been busying themselves with over the past four years is pretty staggering. And I don't think we should let them get away with that as they kind of work themselves up into this moral fury over what Trump's saying. Brendan? The thing that is important to bear in mind from my point of view anyway is that the greatest threat to democracy at the moment is anti-populism, not populism. That's why what Trump is currently doing is so disappointing, even though it is actually quite predictable because Trump is, you know, he's an unpredictable, narcissistic loudmouth and he does things like this. He takes to Twitter and he does things and he initiates processes and he, he sees himself as this ultimate victim of the of the establishment, which is not entirely untrue, of course, but he does push that in a particularly sometimes a, a very strange direction. But I think what's important to bear in mind, and this is why it's important to point out the hypocrisy of the people who are currently criticizing Trump, is that the biggest threat to our democratic rights is not the populist movement. If anything, the populist movement in its various guises is something that is trying to tap in more directly to ordinary people's concerns in a way that we hadn't seen in politics in the West for the past 30 or 40 years. So that's a very interesting democratic experiment. The real anti-democratic sentiment these days is coming from the anti-populist pushback, from the old technocratic establishment, the Hillary Clinton-style establishment, the Remainer elites in the UK, the EU elites in Europe, and and others as well. It's really from those sections of society that we are seeing the argument that democracy is an untrustworthy tool. It has to be tamed. It has to be checked. It has to be balanced. People cannot be trusted. That's really where that argument is coming from. So it's important that we criticise Trump for behaving as a very, very bad loser and potentially calling American democracy into question. We absolutely have to criticise that. But I think we've got to keep our eye on where the real threat to democracy is coming from today, which is from those sections of society which who are desperate to put the populist genie back in the bottle and go back to a situation where they were the rightful rulers of us and where our concerns and our views didn't really get an hearing. And we can't allow the West to go back to that old style of politics. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider, or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.